This is the Monroeville Christian Church podcast, where you can find sermons, Bible studies, and other biblical content produced by Monroeville Christian Church. My name is Covey Wise. I'm one of the preachers at Monroeville Christian Church. We're committed to teaching, training, and transforming lives for Christ, and we invite you to grow with us. Good morning. It is great to be here. Always honored um, to have this opportunity to stand up here and preach the word. Um, Certainly helps me a lot. You guys are such a great encouragement to me. And um, I hope I can uh, reflect that up here as well. I'm very thankful for this opportunity. Um, Before I uh, do start here, I want to make sure I give uh, credit to my wife for the PowerPoint behind me. If you like it, she she did it. If you don't like it, she did it. So uh, get me get myself uh, safe in that situation. Um, anytime I'm uh, in preparation for a, a sermon that I'm going to preach, I always you know obviously consult many commentaries and different you know study materials to to learn the material and, and put it all together. Um, but I always also uh, look up sermons online. Uh, FaithfulPreaching.com is. A great, a great uh, website by Scott Sheridan. He put that up. And there's all kind of incredible preachers in the brotherhood um, on there. And I looked and looked and looked. And it was struggling so hard to find a sermon on there to listen to where I could steal material from, you know. Um, no, it's always good to hear uh, what you're going to be preaching on preached first um, and, and just kind of get some ideas. And I finally found one. It was preached by Roger Chambers. It was preached from this pulpit right here, actually, um, sometime back in the 80s. Um, so it was pretty cool. Um, if I really wanted to do a good job on this, I would have just copied everything he said, um, and it would have been perfect. But I had to do my own sermon, obviously. Um, but I just thought that was neat. You know, he preached it right here. That was the only one I could find on there. So if you were here that day, you might remember this. <laughs> so we're going to be in Jude, um, the, just the first, first part of Jude there. It's a very short book, uh, 25 verses, uh, one chapter. And the interesting thing about Jude is... Um, Jude was originally probably going to be somewhere around the length of Romans, or similar size anyway, um, similar in scope to Romans, uh, talking about our common salvation. Um, but something changed along the line. And I'm going to get into that here. Um, he says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our, Lord, of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is going to be, um, this letter's later, uh, one of our more later letters, um, they say somewhere between 55 and 80 A.D., but it's more towards the end of that, so more like 75 A.D. And it's not written to any specific congregation, as far as we can tell. He doesn't specify anything. Um, but the way it worked, as many of you know, that the letters in the New Testament were 
letters written to the churches, and then they would get spread around. You know, they couldn't just send out a group text so everybody could get the memo. They had to, by, by hand, write these letters and then scatter them abroad uh, by hand. Uh, they had messengers, and they passed them amongst the churches to read. And uh, as I said, uh, he, was, he said he was very diligent to write about our common salvation. And Romans is the, is the one book that we always go to, and we figured that that's probably what it was going to be. But something changed. Uh, Jude somehow got word, or maybe he observed for himself, that there was an enemy in the camp. Um, false teachers, uh, apostate teachers, uh, just they were teaching false doctrine in the church. And there were many who were denying the faith, uh, as he said there, denying our Lord. So uh, he, he, had a, he had a change of heart, a change of mind. And so he, he writes this, this urgent letter instead. Instead of this long general theological dissertation like Romans, uh, we got a postcard instead. And that doesn't come as a surprise because whenever we have an emergency message or an urgent message that needs to get out quickly, we don't take the time to explain all the fine print details before we, we tell them what the danger is, right? Uh, we, we need to, to get the message out there very quickly. Uh, if my child is running towards the highway, I don't stop and start explaining how, you know, force equals mass times acceleration, and if this half-ton pickup hits you at 25 miles per hour, it's going to hit you with X amount of force. I don't do that. You know, if my child is running towards the road, I say, stop! And once they stop, once they get the message, once I set the tone of what I'm trying to tell them, then we can do some explaining. And that's kind of what Jude does here. The, you know, the danger at hand is just too, is too urgent uh, for a general widespread letter. And he sets the tone right off the bat in, in verses 3 and 4, which we'll get into, and what his whole purpose of writing this letter was. It was very, very urgent. Um, so basically the church here, the walls have been breached. Somehow um, so there, there's false teaching happening in the church, and basically they need to drop everything and make sure they face this problem. And that's his, uh, his, his sole purpose here um, in writing this letter. So verses 1 and 2, I'm going to start there in the greeting. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, uh, to those who are called, beloved by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but Jude was actually the half-brother of Christ as well um, and the brother of James. And you would think, it kind of comes as a surprise at first when you think, wouldn't Jude want to associate himself with being the brother of, of the Christ? Wouldn't that be his ultimate goal? I want to be known as his brother. But he doesn't do that. And we think we know why. It's probably because Jude, uh, realizing who Christ is, being the Son of God, uh, it was better for him to be known as his servant, his bond servant. So Jude's very humble we can see here. So he identifies himself as the brother of James and the servant of Jesus Christ. I think that's, that's important to, to note. And also, James here that he mentions, um, that he would have been very well known because this James would have been the writer of the book of James that we find a few pages or a few books before Jude. Uh, so that was totally sufficient, being known by, as, as James's brother. Um, that would have given him all the credibility he needed, and they would have known very well who James was. And uh, he, had, he identifies his recipients of the letter as the called. A, he says, beloved and the kept. So let's look at what those, some of those terms mean. 
when we see the term called in Scripture, um, our minds always go to the idea, or as they should, of uh, the idea of summoning a man to responsibility or to a feast uh, or to a festival or to a court of judgment. Okay, so, uh, for instance, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14 says that the call of God is given for every man, and it is through the gospel. Okay, so these people he's talking to, they have heard the gospel. They've been given the responsibility by, by hearing the gospel to respond to the gospel, and they obviously have. They are Christians. They have responded. They've been responsible with the calling that has come their way. And it stands to reason that if we are called or if people are called by the gospel, then we need to be preaching the gospel. Because that's where the truth is. That's what's going to convict the sinner. And the gospel is how we inherit salvation through what Christ did at the cross. That's our only hope. And he says, beloved. You know, this is the term beloved. This is, this is that, that love term. It, it grips the soul. It shows the nature of, of the call. And you know, while the world may hate us for speaking the truth, which we'll get into more, um, love is the real motive, isn't it? You know, you gotta be, if you really love somebody, you don't let them go on believing a lie. And sin is a lie. You know, we think that sin and whatever we want to do is going to produce the ultimate. It's going to let us down every time. So if we love somebody, we're going to tell them the truth, regardless if it offends them or not. And the, the real motive for offering the way of escape for man is love. And that comes through the gospel. And when he responds to the call, he becomes beloved or beloved in his own nature because he is beloved of God. He is one of God's children. Whenever he responds to that call. And finally, we see kept or preserved in Christ Jesus. This is very comforting because this means that our enemy, our adversary, the devil, he can't just swing by and snatch us away from Christ without us giving him permission, basically. He can't just take us away from the hope that we have in Christ. The ability on God's part to be kept under his saving grace and under their chosen state of redemption, uh, it's uncontested, right? It cannot be stolen away from us. Um, and as long as that individual saint, the one that's in Christ, is faithful and stays, remains faithfully in God's predetermined establishment, that's the church, that's us, then he'll be kept and guarded. Uh, does that mean life will be easy? Absolutely not. Um, never believe a lie that Christian life should, is going to produce all this, this virtuous life. Uh, it's, certainly, it's life indeed, for sure, and that there is much virtue to it, but it's not going to make your life any easier, and it's not supposed to. Um, these false teachers, these apostates, those who deny the faith, they're going to make life miserable for us at times, aren't they? But the misery that we may withstand here on earth our sicknesses and all these various things that you guys see. You know, just turn on the news for three and a half seconds and you see it. Um, that pales in comparison to the glories that are to follow if we remain faithful in Christ. So in other words, take heart. Okay, the life is going to be hard. The, the everlasting joy in Christ is yours if you stay there. If, no matter how bad things get here on earth, if you keep your faith in Christ, the glories that follow will far outweigh it. My, one of my favorite passages is Romans 8.18. It says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed in us. 
So we can see here, uh, the, book is, the book of Jude is, is, isn't just a strong judgment against the apostate. It's just as much a warning uh, to the saint to not choose the path of apostasy. And once again, apostasy is to turn your back on the faith, to denounce the faith. And there's more than one way you could do that. You don't have to denounce it verbally, but your lifestyle will show just as much. And then Jude sums up his message here, his, his greeting, uh, with multiplied mercy, peace, and, and love to the readers. And um, so now, as we move on, uh, this is getting into verses 3 and 4. Now Jude's going to get down to business. Okay, This is where the meat of the letter really starts. This is where he gets to work on uh, what's going on in these, church, in these churches or whoever he's writing to. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our Lord into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and Lord Jesus Christ. So, as we already talked about, the, just brief, Jude changes his mind about the subject matter. Yeah, he switches gears from this general, lengthy theological dissertation to this short emergency letter to contend earnestly for what's been written, what's been completed once and for all. So, those of our modern world, us especially in the you know, 21st century in the United States, um, this is kind of hard to accept sometimes because we hear all about God's love, and, and we, we picture Jesus as this, this soft, sheepish-type man. Um, but but he, was, he was anything but soft. You know, he was, he was the real thing, okay? And whenever we see this word, uh, contend for the faith, you know, we, we get the wrong idea. Because we just want to be fun, uh, peace-loving Christians, don't we? We just want to get along with everybody and live and let live a lot of times. And every generation of the church would love to be the generation or a generation who doesn't have to contend for the faith. We don't want to have to face issues and problems and fight amongst brothers and sisters and be, be separated many times. You know, God's word, as Jesus said, he didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. He came to divide father against son or mother against daughter, all those things. He, it, the, the truth divides Many times, and it has to be contended for. And uh, but if we think like that, that's that's absolute unreality. Thinking that we can just skate by in this Christianity lifestyle without issues and without having to contend for it once in a while, because there never has been, there never will be a time when there weren't problems in regards to the church, where there was complete peace in regards to the church. There's always been battles to engage in. And when you think about the gospel and the nature of the gospel mixed with the nature of the world, um, they're polar opposites. You know, friends with the world is enmity with God. We can't be in both. Uh, we can't be united with both. We are in the world, but we are not of the world, as you've heard. Uh, because the gospel was light, right? Light, the gospel was hope and light that came into an evil world of darkness and exposed darkness's true colors, right? Whenever you... Uh, you you mix those two together, they, they mix about as good as oil and water do. There's no, there's no connection at all. And sin will always hate light because it's exposed by it. So if, if you think about a big rock that you flip over, and underneath that rock it's, it's this dark, cold, uh, dirty, cold area and full of these grotesque insects that 
all scatter as soon as you flip it over. And they're crawling all around. They don't want exposed, right? They want to stay in their, in their dark, cold habitat. And they don't want light to expose them. Now, that's for different reasons. They're insects. But you get the illustration. Light exposes darkness, and darkness rejects it uh, every time. And as long as we're preaching the one and only truth, um, the world is going to hate us. We're going to have issues. Uh, we can always, people, everybody can get along with, with relative truths. You know, that's a big thing right now, keeping truth relative. Anybody can get along with, uh, take on forms of easy beliefism. And we can just pat each other on the back and, and waltz up to heaven together and just go on our merry way. But if that's our idea of Christianity and that's how we gear our lives, we're not going to help us. We're not going to help anybody else. Because we have to stand for the truth. The truth has been established. It's not going to change. And Jude's telling us that. It's delivered once and for all. No matter what men try to do uh, to change it, it's, it's, it is what it is. And it is contended for, no matter what the consequences are. And we know at this time, there was many grave consequences in the physical world for, for them standing for the truth. It would make it a lot easier to, to go against God because of what they had to endure. And... So, and another thing to make sure that we understand is that this is not a call to be contentious by any means. Um, we, we're not supposed to go to looking for enemies, okay? We're not going to look for, to, to make problems with people. But naturally, because of the nature of what we stand for, uh, people are going to hate us. It's always been that way. And what uh, we do not ever want to be contentious or harsh in preaching the truth. That's, that's never the way to go. And the idea con conveyed by the word contend, this puts you into a, um, a military or a sporting event. Okay, so in that, in that type of setting where they're fighting for victory on the battlefield or in the arena. Okay, so the very nature of being on the battlefield in war is that it calls for battle because there's an enemy at hand, right? And this enemy who is trying to advance on whatever it is that we stand for. And if we don't contend for what we stand for against the enemy, we lose. And in the sense of the sporting uh, event, uh, we're contending against our opponent for various reasons. Now, it's very important to put this in the, in the first century context. This type of sporting event that's being relayed, uh, the idea that's given here by this contend, this is, this is first century sporting events. This is first century Greek-type Olympic sports where losing was either very bad injury or, or death. Okay, so the stakes were very high in these sporting events if you lost. You didn't just go home and, and you go back to your hometown and get patted on the back and say, try again tomorrow. You were likely either hurt or dead. And that's, I think that carries the great idea over to what we're contending for. Because if we don't contend and if we get defeated by the enemy, it's spiritual death. It's eternal death. And there's no coming back from eternal death. So now, the time is now, while we are here still alive, we need to be contending for what the faith is. It's there, and we can't change it. And this, is in, in related, this faith is in reference to the completed gospel. And by this time, later in the first century, they were having some, some physical written uh, documents uh, of what this was. It was established. It was, it was very clear. They had an understanding of what this faith was. They weren't prophesying in parts so much by this time. They had solid, tangible records of God's word uh, and his plan, which needed to be referred to and it needed to be studied in order to understand. Uh, so in other words, at this time we're moving from 
from the apostolic age, right, with miraculous gifts of prophecy, we're moving into the stage of the written word of the apostles and prophets, which we have in completed form today. And he says, the faith was once for all delivered. That means it is an adequate action. It never needs to be repeated. It never needs to be amended. Hebrews 10 talks about the suffering of Christ. He suffered once for all, for all time. His death is a completed action. The effects go on for eternity. It covers all of mankind, past, present, and future. All who obey the gospel, they're covered. And we see Paul make mention of this uh, very strongly, actually, if you read the book of Galatians. In Galatians 1.8, it says, But even if we, that's us apostles, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. So if anybody ever comes preaching a gospel that you can't find in Scripture, it's not lining up with what God's Word says, let them be accursed. Don't listen to them. They're false teachers. Moving on now into the importance of knowing the faith. Okay, if we're going to contend for something, we need to know what that something is. And we can only do that in regards to the faith if we're diligently studying God's word and what he has to say about it. Um, if we're going to go up against apostates and against false teachers, we need to have our firm foundation planted so that we have somewhere to work from. Uh, if we're not firmly planted in the truth, uh, we won't know where we stand. And it's hard to do battle without any good footing underneath you. And there's been countless churches who have allowed this, this secretive, quiet, slow, unnoticed infiltration of false teaching that worms its way in and attacks the very foundational principles that we're built on. If you knock the foundation out of a house, it falls. And we are built on the faith. We are built on the apostles' doctrine, on the gospel. And that's where our foundation stands. And if we ever lose that, we fall. And we have to be able to Defend it. And the only way that we defend it is by be, being people of the book. If we don't know the book, if we don't know the word, if we don't know the faith, we cannot stand. We have to be in study as much as we can. And we need to be able to detect this heresy in this apostate teaching and this false teaching before it's too late. Okay, so these battles fought against false teaching need to be engaged in while there's just little sprouts. You know, whenever you have a weed pop up in your garden, you don't let it grow to its, its full size because it just grows these roots out, and it's really hard to get out. You're always fighting that thing because you can't get all the, the mother root out of the ground to, uh, to, make it, to make it stop growing. But whenever you get a little weed, it pops up, and you just pop it out of the ground, and that weed's gone. It's much easier uh, to keep after it. And this error needs to be detected so early that it's almost undetectable. So think of it like this. I'll give you, I guess I'll give you another illustration. It's like a cancer. Okay, if you catch cancer in its early stages, maybe you just have some pains here or a lump there, and you can attack that cancer before it spreads throughout the body, a lot of times your attacks against it are much more effective, and the danger is minimal. Uh, there's still consequences to be paid. There's still difficulties. But if you let that cancer grow to, say, stage 4 cancer or stage 4 lung cancer, whatever it is, and then you try to attack it, well, your attacks are going to be much less effective. And your attacks are going to hurt more of the body because all of that cancer has spread throughout the body. So it affects more surface area, if you will. It's deeper in the body. And a lot of times people don't make it. And that's it's very unfortunate. And that's the same thing here. If we don't stop this spread in its early ages, we let it spread throughout the church, souls are lost. 
lives are lost eternally. We have to stand for what God's word has to say. Moving on here to verse 4. He says, certain men have crept in unnoticed. So there's some debate about who these certain men are. He doesn't tell us. Uh, we don't know why. Maybe because he doesn't even want to give them the satisfaction of being on the pages of the word of God. But these certain men, uh, whoever they are, they crept in unnoticed. And it seems like some, some scholars believe that Gnosticism is the belief system here um, that many claims being talked about. Uh, but this is pretty early. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of information about our Gnosticism this early from what I could tell um, to, to say that's for, for sure what, what, what he's talking about. But there is enough connections that I think it's worth doing a little brief overview here of, of some of the Gnostic beliefs because uh, a lot of it fits in multiple ways. So what Gnosticism was was basically a mixture of uh, it would have been a mixture of like Oriental Greek and philosophies with, with Christian teaching, which really made a full philosophical system out of the teaching of Christianity. And it's, it's perverted very badly basic theology forever. We're still suffering from it in many ways. So what happened, for example, just an example, was the question of what must I do to be saved from sin got changed to what is the origin of evil. Okay, so evil, basically, for the Gnostic, was identified with the material existence, with the physical. So and not, not, I'm not just talking trees and, and rocks. I'm talking flesh of animals, flesh of humans. So here's the idea. Man lived in an evil world inside of an evil body, rendering him completely helpless to do any good for himself. So man was completely, completely helpless in loving himself. Um, and this resulted in three outcomes. Number one, some Gnostics became um, what we call ascetic, which means that they, <coughs> they tortured and they punished their bodies for being evil, which didn't do them a whole lot of good. And then some also, they decided that since they were helpless victims of the evil flesh, it didn't matter how they lived. So what that led to was there was no use in trying so they took on all these, these they, to indulge in all these kinds of different vile acts and practices. And that's kind of what Jude's talking about in verse 4, uh, whenever he says they turned God's grace into lewdness or licentiousness. And I'm going to talk more about that in a minute, about lewdness and licentiousness. But since, basically since they, they took God themselves and they put themselves in a, in a helpless situation, they just said, we might as well just do what we want because God will cover us, you know, because we can't do anything good for ourselves. And since flesh in their minds was so evil, this is the third thing it did. They said God couldn't possibly have occupied the flesh like Jesus did because if he did, then he'd be, he would have been tainted by this inherently uh, corrupted flesh. So this ideology, as, as we know, has led to a vast array of teaching in the Christian world and has Millions and millions of souls have been, have been damned to hell because in it, the faith, once for all, has been lost. That's not how grace works. And, and it's, a, it's a shame that that's, that's the way it's, it's affected the church for, for centuries. And it, it will continue to. Um, and an interesting point, as I was studying along regarding this, this Gnostic idea, um, in Holloway's commentary, he mentions that the early Christian leader, uh, Irenaeus, which, who, who was... Later off, after the Apostolic Age, somewhere around 130 to 200 A.D., 
he actually said that uh, some Gnostic groups uh, that that uh, they they saw people like Cain and Korah as some of their heroes. And it's interesting, and we're not going to cover it today, but down in verse 11, if you look there, he actually mentions both Cain and Korah. And it's just kind of interesting that, that he happens to mention them. So it almost seems as if he's refuting that position of the Gnostics uh, by using them as a negative example. But we can't be sure about that. But whatever they were, they crept in uh, unaware. And uh, the way it's worded, it indicates that these men, this wasn't accidental false teaching uh, by ignorant teachers. That's very, very dangerous in the church. Uh, we need not to be ignorant of the word. But uh, this, the way this is worded, it's, it shows that men, certain men have deliberately snuck in uh, for the sole purpose of intentionally deceiving those of the faith. And there's always a secretive nature uh, about these false teachings in the church. And we see this in Peter, uh, 2 Peter 2, 1. He says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies and even denying the master who bought them. That sounds familiar. Bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And in Paul, whenever he wrote his letter to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, um, he said this, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. I want to make an important point here. And uh, this is something that we need to always remember. There's all kinds of enemies of the church. We can look out across the world. We have, we have our government. We have society in general. We have communism, all these different things. But, you know, all those big things that we hear about all the time, they are not our main enemies in the church. Those things are part of a fallen world. We understand that. The real danger for the church comes from inside. This is the secret of people who somehow snuck in, unknown, and in some way have been given the ability, through people trusting them falsely, um, to, to be basically given a, a situation, a, a, an opportunity to stand like up here where I'm at to give them an opportunity to have a lot of influence on many people and preach false, false doctrine. That's, that's the real danger of the church, is the enemies that come from inside. And uh, the reason is because they look just like us. They dress like us, they talk like us, they act like us. But their lifestyle and what they're actually trying to do is against us. It's against God's word. And oftentimes it's hard to, hard to detect. And oftentimes until there's a lot of damage done before... Um, it's, anything's done about it. And that's the, main, that's the main enemy of the church. It's come from inside, and Satan knows that, and he'll use that. Um, this word for crept in, uh, I'm going to probably butcher this, but from what I can tell in the Greek, this is peres duo, and that means to come by stealth, or literally to sneak in a side door, not come in the main entrance, you sneak in a side door. So it's clear we're not talking about accidental error. Uh, this is deliberate, uh, secretive, misleading. So how did they sneak in? Once again, we don't know. Um, there's so many different ways uh, they could sneak in. Um, but what we do know is that their condemnation is marked out. It's marked out long beforehand. So not individual people, but we can read uh, from the Old Testament. And he talks about this after we're, uh, the, the section of Jude that we're going to be studying. He talks about this later on. He says, what happened to the unbelieving Israelites who were rescued from Egypt. Since they were unbelieving, they were condemned. They received condemnation. What about those of Sodom and Gomorrah? 
who were sexually immoral, uh, who didn't take God seriously. They were set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. The same judgment to, that, that happened to those Old Testament people, that whatever was received um, of them, that will be what these false teachers will receive, or something similar. It's judgment. So God is the same 6,000 years ago. He's the same today. He'll be the same forever. He's not changing for us. If there's false teachers, they're going to pay. You can guarantee it. And he punished them in former times um, because they set themselves against his people. And he'll do it now. It's a very strong warning here. And he's not be taken lightly. And he finishes by describing what exactly these false teachers are doing. Um, he says first that they're ungodly men. That means they basically lived like God didn't exist. Sense, like, it's almost as if there's no punishment for wrongdoing. And there's no, if there's no God, if they, if they act like God doesn't exist, then there's no way to be punished for wrongdoing because there's no standard. Right? We need a standard. It never changes. And anytime somebody comes in and they're undermining God's holy wrath, his holy judgment, we need to be very leery about this kind of people because we know God's a consuming fire. We know that God's, the vengeance is his and he's going to repay. And we're not going to sneak by God uh, with false teaching. It will not work. You might be able to get through this life without being detected, but God knows exactly what you're doing. And he says, which I mentioned earlier, he says, they turn the grace of God into licentiousness or lewdness. Okay, this is... This means that they turned God's grace into a license to sin. You know, I, I do it now and ask for forgiveness later kind of idea. I get to do whatever I want. God will forgive me, whatever I do. Which, the problem with this is, is that this teaching makes a life of loose living, it makes it seem proper. It makes, it, you make, it makes the people who stand on for the faith seem out of place. Seem like the odd one out, which we usually are. So they'll say things like, well, after all, God gave us all these appetites, right? He gave us all these, these desires. It's okay to, to, to sin a little. It's okay to drink a little. It's okay to do this little bit of sin here, a little bit of there. It's okay. God will forgive us, right? That's the idea. He wants us to enjoy the, the good things in life. After all, he gave them to us, didn't he? What does Romans 6 say? It says, do we go on sinning that grace may abound? Surely not. We do not go about like, uh, so that grace may abound. We have died to ourselves when we, when we put on Christ in baptism. We became alive to God. We are His servants. We are His chosen. We are to be His spokesmen. We live for Him, not ourselves. God gives grace. What, what that does, making God's grace a license to sin, is the complete opposite of what it is intended to do. So, God paid an unpayable debt for us through sending His Son to do what we could never do. And because of that, we get to receive His grace. So we should be even more obedient to Him because the Son obeys better than the slave. So God's undeserved grace given to us, that should make us want to serve Him even more because He did the unthinkable, the unattainable for us. So why wouldn't we give everything we have for Him and for His cause? So this, this false teaching, this has moral implications, this has intellectual implications um, that all stem from false teaching. And just a little note here, um, bad living always follows bad theology. Always follows bad theology. And lastly, Jews says this, they say, 
they deny our only master and Lord. So in other words, they reject the authority of God. They reject his, they, they reject his lordship. Uh, maybe not verbally, like I said earlier, but their lifestyles. They say everything that needs to be said. And uh, they were not submitted to the lordship of Christ. Complete recognition of Christ as Lord is made with the life as well as with the mouth. What we say and what we do should go hand in hand. So maybe these people, like just, I've, I've have had the same situation. They wanted Jesus as their Savior, but they didn't want them as their Lord. Our main sin problem in the world is, stems from pride. We want to be God. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want to have to be subject to a greater authority. But if we're going to have any hope in salvation, Christ has to be our Lord above everything else. And then he can be our Savior. So in conclusion, why is it so important? If I didn't make it clear enough, why is it so important to contend earnestly for the faith? Well, here's why. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, John 14. If we expect to come to the kingdom, and if we don't come through the Father, to the Father, through the Son, we're not going to come at all. And neither is anybody else. Salvation is in Christ. It's in Christ only. It's in no other name. And outside of Christ, there's absolutely no, no hope at all whatsoever of salvation. And according to the New Testament, we come to Christ according to the apostles' doctrine. We come according to the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. The foundation of that doctrine or faith that gives all of its power is the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ at Calvary. And this is when... This is that time in history, our history, where the power of Satan, the death was struck from his hand. He took away his power over death. And if Satan could go back in time, in history, and erase the cross of Calvary, and what that did for us and against him, he would do it. He would get rid of it, but he can't. It happened, and now he has to deal with it. The next best thing Satan can do, besides erasing the cross, is cause us to miss it. He can cause us to miss the cross. And he's done that over all of Christendom, over all of, of, of biblical, you know, what they call Christianity, um, of the world. He has caused millions to miss the cross. He doesn't need you to deny him. He doesn't need you to deny the faith. He doesn't need you to starkly stand against Christ. All he needs you to do is miss the new birth. Because... Unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. And there's millions of people, good people from our standards, who are headed to hell and think they're headed to heaven because they simply missed the cross, which comes through the apostles' doctrine. On Pentecost, there were those who asked the apostle Peter, men and brethren, what do we do? And the ambassador, that's Peter, the one who carries the word of the king. It's just as if the king is speaking. He said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's never been changed. It never will be changed. Either men will come that way or they will not come at all. And this is why we must contend earnestly for something that's been established once and for all, while men in the world are trying to change it. This is serious business. If the simple faith 
once for all delivered is lost. Jesus is lost. And if Jesus is lost, then so are we. And we have no hope whatsoever of salvation. Without Jesus, all we have is a certainty of impending judgment that will last for eternity. I heard a quote that said, I actually stole this from that sermon Roger Chamber was talking about, and he stole this quote from somebody else. He said, Salvation is in Christ, but the only Christ we have is the Christ clothed in his gospel. And this is why Jude changed his mind. This is why he wrote this short emergency letter, reminding them and reminding us to contend earnestly for the faith. It's been handed down. It's been entrusted to us once and for all. We need to be diligent stewards of what's been entrusted for us, and we must not let men try to change it. So as the men come forward this morning, as we close out, if you haven't obeyed the gospel, that means you're not in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you cannot receive God's grace. You're in eternal danger. If you realize that you're a sinner and you need to be forgiven, then you need to do what lost people did in Scripture in the New Testament to be saved. We just repeat what they did. It's easy. We don't have to complicate it. On the day of Pentecost, as I already talked about, Peter convicted those who were there of what they did. They killed the Messiah. And they were helpless. They were helpless. They were cut to the heart. They said, what do we do? Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the for remission of your sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is to us today as well. It's promised to our children. It's the promise to all those who are far off, as he said. And if you're in that situation where you realize that you're a lost sinner who believes Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that you're willing to repent, to change your life, to follow Jesus, we'd love to assist you in obeying the gospel before it's too late. And as always, if you have unanswered questions, we'd love to talk to you about that. There's many things in Scripture that need to be answered, and we'd like to help you understand it better, because like I said, this has eternal consequences. Contend for the faith. It's our only hope.